Lord, this morning we need your help. We need your Holy Spirit to um, illuminate the word of God to our hearts. Lord, you desire to work through your messenger this morning, Lord, as your mouthpiece. And allow our hearts, Lord, to be humble and, and sensitive and receptive, Lord, to what you have to say. You are our great God and Savior. You have breathed out your word. Now, Lord, speak it into our hearts with power, um, Lord, with effect, so that we can be changed and conform to your image. We ask this now in your name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. For 38 terrifying minutes, many in Hawaii spent Saturday morning hunkered in bathtubs and basements waiting for the ballistic missile struck that, that never came. 9-11, or say 9-1-1 networks were overwhelmed and some fired off traffic messages to loved ones on the mainland. Hawaii public officials called it a day they would never forget. The panic ensued after the Hawaii Emergency Management Agency mistakenly sent out an alert that warned residents of an imminent ballistic missile strike and urged them to seek immediate shelter. I'm reading an NBC News account of that event. I don't know if you heard about it. You probably did. Um, and it said, it went out on the, on the cell phones. It says, this is not a drill. And with all caps, the alert just blared into people's phones. And the notice turned out to be a false alarm. But of course, there was panic. And then ultimately, that panic turned to anger when they found out that it was a false alarm. And as I heard about it, and as I pondered on it, I, I wondered how people will respond the next time they get a missile alert. Will they just kind of like carry on as if nothing really is going to happen? This isn't really a, a, a missile alert at all. Uh, will they just ignore it? Will they seek shelter, just kind of playing it safe because they're not really knowing wh what to believe? Um, see, the question here is to believe or not to believe. That's really the question. Do I believe what comes over my phone or do I not believe it? And as we come to our text today, that is exactly the kind of thing that Mark is wanting to stress for us. Are we to believe in this person called Jesus? Are we to believe that he can, he can say or he can do what he says he's going to do? Are we able to believe that? Or are we more the kind of people that function in unbelief? And so this morning, let's begin by looking at the structure of the text. Let's just see how it's put together. And one of the things that you, you find as you're reading paragraphs of Scripture, sometimes you want to look for this, it's called the top and the tail. You want to look to find out whether or not there's something at the beginning or something at the end. Because what you have here really is a beginning and an end, and that there's this content in the middle that drives the story. And what you have at the beginning, at the top, is Jesus and the disciples at the bottom of the mountain. And if you remember, Jesus with three disciples had just been up to a mountain where Jesus was transfigured. By the end of the paragraph, Jesus is with all the disciples in a house. So you have these two bookends, and in the middle of these bookends, you have these really encounters that Jesus has with the scribes, with the crowd, with the Father, 
with the son and then ultimately in casting out the demonic spirit. And that's how this, this story unfolds. And so this is a lesson for the disciples, but it is also a revealing of Jesus and his power and his character. It is also for us an opportunity to see ourselves and to question our belief or unbelief. Now, we love mountaintop experiences. We love those times when we have this sweet communion with Christ, whether it's a retreat, whether it's a missions trip, whether it's just a personal kind of day of reflection where maybe we go hiking, we go to the ocean, and, and it's somewhat physical as well as spiritual, and, and we're warmed by all that. But the reality is, friends, we, we, we are called to live our lives, not always on that mountaintop, but in the valley in the, the mundane aspects of life. And we talk about that a lot because that's where God has called us to live our lives. I mean, parents have to take care of their kids. They've got to make sure they get to school. And, and parents have to get to work. They've got to do their job. And you've got to change the oil. You've got to put gas in the car. You've got to cook eggs in the morning. You've got to do all sorts. Life is mundane in that sense. It's not always going to be on the mountaintop. And what we have here then is this reality check for the disciples, in particular the three that were up with Jesus, with the lingering effects of what they've experienced, what they've seen, what they've heard, and how they have observed Jesus. They come down this mountain and they immediately encounter this hardship, this conflict, this suffering, this anguish, and this rampant unbelief. In the midst of it all, Jesus continues his ministry by confronting man's ongoing unbelief. And so this morning, that's really going to be the focus of our time. Jesus confronting our struggle against unbelief. Our struggle. Certainly we're going to see it with the disciples. We're going to see it with others as we unpack this story. But ultimately, Jesus is trying to challenge us through his word about our struggle with unbelief. So let's first of all consider the unbelief of the scribes. Now, they're not, they're not talked about much in this passage, but they're there, and they are a, a consistent theme through the gospel of Mark, in particular all the gospels, but specifically here in Mark's gospel. Look at verse 14. It says, When they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and the scribes arguing with them. Now, the scribes were, were those who were called... Uh, to serve in a capacity where they spent their time seeking to understand the law. Law, that would be the, the Old Testament law. They were theological lawyers. That's kind of a strange combination when you think about it, right? Um, they were the ones you would go to if you had some kind of a legal question within the Judaist, a Jewish system. And they would uh, pretend to have all the answers. They wanted to give right answers, but they would often not have the right answers. And that's what happens when Jesus encounters them. He asks them questions, and they can't answer the question. Or they, they try and trick Jesus with a question. And Jesus comes back with an answer that they can't resolve now because he stumped them. 
Now, we must remember that these scribes, these Pharisees, these religious leaders, because they were all kind of uh, in cahoots together, they were on the lookout for Jesus because Jesus has been upstaging them. He's been teaching. He's been healing. He's been casting out demons. He's doing things that they likely have not been able to do. And so they get feisty with him, if you remember, when he healed the paralytic. Not because he healed him, but because of what? Because Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. And then they get feisty with him because he also heals the, the man with the withered hand. And it wasn't because he healed the man, it's because he did it on the Sabbath. And ultimately, in that passage, it tells us that they wanted to destroy him. And so it's clear that they knew that he was a miracle worker. They have seen him perform miracles. It's, it's clear. The evidence is there. But they do not like him. And ultimately, they communicate to the crowd and they communicate to those around them that this one who is this miracle worker is not doing this in the power of God. He's doing it by the power of the devil, by Satan himself. That is their mode of operation. And ultimately, they have set a course where they want to remove him. They want to destroy him. They want to kill him. And friends, this is simply hardened unbelief. It's an unbelief that has the facts before them, but chooses to ignore the facts. In the face of evidence, in the face of, of a clear explanation of Scripture, they stand opposed to what it says. So hardened unbelief says, I don't care what evidence you have about who Jesus really is. I don't care that you're pointing uh, me to what the Scriptures actually say. You're standing against my religious pursuit and my idols, and I won't let you stand in the way. Now, friends, there's, there's a hardness there. And just like we mentioned with Simeon Trust, there, there's, there's a way that you go about understanding what the Scripture is all about. You don't just pick and choose verses and make them mean something that they don't actually mean. There's a, you, you have to study Scripture in its context. You've got to read a verse in its context to make sure you have the right meaning before you go out and you, you say it and claim certain things. But even when that's laid out, these are the ones who express this unbelief, and it's a hardened unbelief. And friends, we see it around us, don't we? First of all, we see it in the hardness of the secular culture that is around us that says, I don't need God in my life. I will live it how I please. Thank you very much. Don't um, use the Bible to argue your morality. It's just a book that's been put together by man, and so why is, or are those man's opinions any better than my opinions. That's what they would say. The Bible's not superior to my morality. And again, there's other ways that the secular culture demonstrates a hardness against the things of God. But interestingly enough, we find this hardness even in the context of the church. Church that says that the Bible isn't God's word, but it's, it, it's the, the fact that the word becomes God's word. If, if you're inspired by reading it, God has used it to inspire you to do good to other people, whatever it might be. Well, you can get inspired by reading Moby Dick. But this is God's breathed out word. 
Or we must not take the Bible literally, but seek to apply the, the spirit of God's heart that we find contained in it, which basically means cut out all the stuff we don't like and embrace the stuff we do like that embraces our lifestyle, embraces our choices, and that's what we're going to promote, and that's going to be what Christianity is. But that just is not honest with Scripture at all. But it comes as a result of a hardness of heart, and it's a hardened unbelief. They don't want to face the evidence of Scripture. Now, again, not much is said about the scribes in this passage, but it is worth noting that there is this unbelief that is ongoing. They are arguing with the people in the crowd. And you wonder what they're arguing about specifically. I, I, I would tend to think that the, the, the scribes here are reflecting back on the disciples' failure to cast out the demon from this boy, and they're saying, you know what, hey, <laughs> he can't do this. You, you thought this guy was some great miracle worker, but look at this, he can't even do this. Why are you continuing to believe these disciples when they're not able to do what they say they're going to do? It's a form of mocking and putting down. And we have it again in our culture, right? Jesus says he's coming again. Well, I don't see him. It's been 2,000 years. Where is he? Ha, 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 right? It's that kind of attitude. But then we focus, as we move along here, to the unbelief of the crowd. The unbelief of the crowd. Now, we're not told where they came from, but more than likely from Capernaum or the villages nearby, and they may have heard that some of Jesus' disciples were out ministering. If you remember, Jesus did send his disciples out uh, previously, I think it's chapter 6, and they went out and did ministry, and they, they did a lot of great things. They even cast out demons while they were out doing that ministry. So even the disciples being in the territory was bringing the crowds out. And what we find, though, in verse 15 is what I'm calling an amazed crowd. Because what we read there is this, and immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, talking about Jesus, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. Now, some have said that the reason why they are so amazed is because Jesus has just been up on the mountain and he was transfigured before um, the three disciples and the Shekinah glory was there. And like Moses, when he came down the mountain, he was glowing. But there's nothing in the text that says that. There's nothing in the text that shows us, if anything, what the text emphasizes is that he's no longer in his glorified state. He's back in his human form, so to speak, and he is now coming down the mountain with the disciples. What this is actually talking about is that they are excited to see Jesus. Why are they excited to see Jesus? Because the disciples were trying to do ministry, but ultimately when they were bringing their loved ones to the disciples, they were hoping that who would be there. And most people always want to go to the top, don't they? They, they want the miracle worker. They don't want the minions that go around with the miracle worker. They want the miracle worker. And so here's Jesus. It's like, oh, he's here. He's going to answer all the questions. This arguing that's going on, it's going to stop because we've seen and we've watched and heard Jesus talk with these people and he, he shuts them up pretty, pretty fast. And he's going to solve the problems that are there. So when they see him, they're saying in their hearts, this is awesome because everything will be fine now that Jesus has come. And then we move into this, this faithless crowd, verse 16 and following, and he asks them, Jesus speaking again, I believe, to the crowd 
um, and certainly the scribes are there, and the disciples are also listening. Um, it says in verse, uh, verse 16, and he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, we know that to be the father, teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. Now, there are two important points that we must carefully consider in light of what we just read. Let's talk, first of all, about um, you know, this, this, these two options before us, really. Is what we see here in this passage demon possession, or is it actually epilepsy? Because there are many that would come to passages like this, and they would look at the evidence that's before them, and they look at the symptoms of this boy, and they would say, this resembles what we consider to be modern-day epilepsy, an epileptic seizure. In other words, they're trying to kind of take the spiritual away and say, you know, unsophisticated man is, he's writing this kind of man-made story, is, is attributing to the devil or to Satan things that are actually true and prevalent in our day. And it's, we know what this is. This is epilepsy. So obviously, this isn't really, uh, you know, demonic activity at all. This is simply a natural sickness, and they didn't know how to explain it, so they said it was devil work. But we must be careful that we don't let the pendulum swing too far. Because this may very well have been epilepsy, but what does the text actually tell us? Here is what we can clearly say. The scriptures are God's holy, breathed out word. God's revelation to us. That's the doctrine of inspiration. They are not the product of man's wisdom, but the very words of God breathed out through human authors by the Holy Spirit. And when they speak of demon possession, that is exactly what's happening. Here the emphasis is that the demon is making him mute, throwing him down, and making him rigid. Now, let me just back up a little bit here and say, at the same time, it is possible for Satan or one of his demons to exploit or piggyback on man's frail condition that is already present. And so what we have here is a boy who suffered from epilepsy, but he also is demon-possessed. I think both of those can be true. Let me explain what I'm saying here by reminding you of a man by the name of Judas. Judas was a disciple. And what was one of Judas's problems? He had a love of something. Anyone know what that is? He had a love of money. And what do you think Satan used to lure Judas away? Judas and how many coins of silver? Okay, I mean, this is what he's known for. And we're told that Satan entered Judas. In other words, he was possessed by Satan himself to accomplish those purposes. He used the very weakness that Judas had. You get that? So when we say, is it demon possession or epilepsy, the answer can be, it, it can actually be both. I think that's a reasonable thing. We don't say, well, there's no such thing as epilepsy. It's all demon possession. Oh, whoa, 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 whoa. But we have an encounter here where Jesus clearly is going to cast out this unclean spirit. 
You know, if we're going to believe God's word to be true, that's what it is. But we also recognize, yeah, this can actually also be epilepsy. Now, the second thing we need to kind of think through there is this. It says that the, the, the disciples were unable. It says your disciples, uh, ask your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able to do that. So the issue here is the disciples' inability, or is it failure? Is there a difference between inability and failure? Now, early in Mark's gospel, again, the, the, the disciples went out two by two, if you remember, and were told specifically that one of the things that they did was to cast out demons. Now, why then could they not help this boy? We'll get to that a little bit later in the story because Jesus addresses it. But there is a sense in which you, you can say, I think, rightly, that when Jesus sent these disciples out on this trial mission, they went out with a temporary power. Ultimately, the power for them, for ministry, would happen on Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit would, would be given to them for ministry, the power of God unleashed through these apostles now to go do ministry for his glory. Okay. So to be able to distinguish between the inability or failure is something we're going to get to yet, but just understand this, that just because you can't doesn't mean that you failed. In fact, God calls you to a lot of things that you may not feel or actually have the ability to do. And what happens then is that God comes along and he, in a sense, bridges that gap with his power to accomplish his purposes in you. You're unable, but God made it able. Okay? And it's not your failure, it's just your inability. And so your relationship with God isn't diminished because you're unable. In fact, it increases because now you're dependent on him because you're unable. Right? You get the difference there. Then we consider this determined Savior. We've seen the amazed crowd, the faithless crowd, but now this determined Savior. Verse 19, and he answered them, O foolish generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. Now this is Jesus primarily directing his words at the crowd. Now, some would say, well, he's directing it at the disciples. I don't think that's what's happening at all. In fact, Jesus' best teaching moments take place in the house. The expression generation occurs five times in Mark, but never with reference to the disciples. The disciples may have been insufficient for the task, but Jesus does not chastise them. In fact, the language here goes back to the Old Testament where we, we see that God speaks about his children in this way. Deuteronomy 32 says this. They are a crooked, twisted, and perverse generation. Numbers 14.11. They despise me. They don't believe in me. Isaiah 65, verse 2. They are rebellious people. See, Jesus here is saying, oh, faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? There's a sense in which he's just been back up the mountain. He's just tasted once again his, his, his heavenly abode. And he's coming down the mountain, and there's a sense of frustration because of man's unbelief. But their faithfulness does not deter Jesus from healing this child. 
For even as he speaks with lament, that's the how long, the how long, his heart is tender to restore this broken boy. And he says, bring him, bring this boy to me. Man's continued faithfulness, or faithlessness, I should say, will never hinder Jesus from his mission. So just even as we heard this morning, man who chooses to stand in the way of God does not hinder God from doing his work. He will always do it. And in the context of the gospel here, Jesus sets his face toward Jerusalem. He is going to suffer. He is going to be crucified. And ultimately, his church is going to be built. And ultimately, he will return again for his bride, regardless of man's effort to get in the way of that. And so what we see here is what I'm calling selfish unbelief. Selfish unbelief. It's an eagerness to benefit from Christ, but not to believe in Christ. This is the, I want Jesus as my genie kind of unbelief. It's the kind of unbelief that says, if he can take care of my physical, temporal problems, that's great, but I'm not really interested in what he has to say. In other words, I'm coming to Jesus to get what I want, but only what what I want, not what he wants. So don't challenge my lifestyle. Don't challenge my choices. But certainly, give me all your goodness. Let me just kind of paint the picture here. Some people love the benefits of being a part of a local church. There's a lot of benefits. You get pastoral care. People that will visit you when you're in the hospital. They'll write you cards. They'll provide meals for you when you have a baby or maybe you're sick. It's a great place to raise your kids. It's a, it's a place where you can get some wise counsel about life. It's, it's a wholesome social gathering. You might even find some political like-mindedness, or you enjoy the, the music and the worship songs, or maybe it's a place where you can exercise gifts where you couldn't do it in other places. But all those things can be a benefit to you while you're still an unbeliever. But you love those things. I want all those things. But I don't want to listen to what Jesus has to say. It's selfish unbelief. Oh, the crowds, they come. Jesus is healing. <laughs> Jesus is casting out demons. He is there to help the people with their physical needs. Oh, come on! But we'll know later in the Gospels when Jesus gives a, if you want to be my disciple, talk. They all disappear. They all go away. Because they want Jesus as their own personal genie. They don't want to follow what he actually says. It's a sad reality, isn't it? Then there's the unbelief of the Father, the unbelief of the Father. Probably the more famous statement in this context, right? Jesus turns his attention from the unbelieving crowd to the Father who stands before him dejected, distressed, and disillusioned. 
And so he asks a question. How long has this been happening to him? And he says, from childhood. And it has often cast him into the fire and into the water to destroy him. I have a a nephew who suffers from Angelman's disease. I think he's, what, 20 years old? Is that how old Zachary is? I think so. And um, I tell you what, he is strong. And he's been strong for a long time. And I give his parents, uh, Albert and Nora, incredible amount of credit because they care for him consistently, constantly. He demands so much. And as I'm reading this, I'm thinking about that, and I'm thinking to myself, can you imagine what this father, and I would assume mother here, have had to endure in caring for their sons? It's there in what he says. It's often that he casts him into the fire. I mean, so this, this boy has scars on his body, I'm sure, from landing in the fire and the suffering that that took place. And then, talk about casting him into the water. I mean, how many times has he been in the water? Maybe he's, he's almost drowned. Can you imagine being that kind of parent? You don't know when something's going to happen in a moment. This is a full-on demonic attack that is seeking to destroy this boy. So it's no wonder that this father comes looking for Jesus' help, and he continues in desperate words and says this, but if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Now just, just read that one more time. If you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. It's actually not a bad prayer, is it? (laughs) See, help is the object of the Father's request, but the source of his hope is rooted in the compassion of Jesus. Isn't this a great reminder that Jesus is a compassionate Savior. He's not cold. He's not mechanical when he sees suffering, when he heals. He does so. He heals with deep compassion for those who are suffering. Man's frailty stirs the compassionate heart of Christ. And so when you're suffering, you may not feel that, but we know it to be true because it's all throughout the Gospels, that Jesus is a compassionate Savior. He truly cares. I mean, I'm using the modern-day vernacular. He really feels your pain. But in the right sense, I say that, not in the superficial way. He really, really does. So it would be good for us all to remember that when we're suffering or to dwell on that when seems, things seem to turn out sour for us or, or when we're fighting against unbelief that wants to change our perception of who Jesus is because in the midst of suffering, we question a lot about who God is. But when we remember that he is truly a compassionate God, that he cares, his compassion doesn't always mean relief. <laughs> But he is compassionate through and through. Now, just kind of back to the story here. Jesus is not interested in the case history of the son. What he's trying to get the father to do is to confess his desperate need and to basically come to the awareness that he is totally helpless except for Jesus. 
I mean, here's my son. Here's what we've gone through. Here's why I've brought him. And and, and if you can, please have compassion and help us. And Jesus responds. Verse 23. And he said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Now, what kind of savior gives a lecture in grammar? Jesus quibbles with the Father's words, if you can. What do you mean, if you can? It's not an issue of whether you can. Throughout the gospel, we're saying, Jesus can, Jesus can, Jesus can. The question here is not whether Jesus can, it's whether Jesus will. And he says, the answer to that question is bound up in the word belief. All things are possible for the one who believes. Now, friends, we've got to be careful because here's a verse of Scripture wrenched out of its context that can mean all sorts of things to people. Jesus, rather than scolding and confronting this man with his choice of words, chooses to deal with him pastorally again. All things are possible for the one who believes. Now, what does this mean? Because this is, this is a, a verse that has been abused and misused over and over and over again. Some interpret it and say, if the father had only believed that his son was going to get better, then he would have gotten better. In other words, the fault of the son's suffering is the fact that his father didn't believe. All right? In other words, this power of positive thinking, oh, I've got to just believe. In our contemporary world, that translates to, and you've heard this, you can do anything you want to do if you just put your mind to it. You ever heard that before? Go into a high school, you know, assembly gathering. That's what's going to come out of the, you know, the athlete that's come to speak, you know. I'm just here to tell you, if you can just put your mind to it, you can do anything you want to do. Lie! I know what they mean by it. Can those young people actually parse that out to understand what they're saying? Now, where we see it a lot, well, I'll, I'll get to that in just a minute. Let, let, me, let me give you an example. The Apostle Paul. We know the Apostle Paul had what was called a thorn in his flesh. It's a figurative term to describe there was something that was bothering him as he was doing ministry. And he comes to God and he asks him how many times? Three times if God would remove it. And some people would say, wait a second, Paul, your problem is you just don't believe. You think three times is enough? You got to come four, five, six, or even more. You just didn't have enough faith. See, all things are possible if you only believe. Friends, that's nonsense. That kind of thinking is not what Scripture is saying at all. What does it mean? What does it mean when Jesus says, everything is possible for those who believe? Does it mean if I had enough faith, I could wake up tomorrow and discover that I have five million in the bank? Oh, let's change it. Ten million in the bank? Does it mean if I had enough faith, I could just beam myself to Ukraine or Bolivia and save the church some money? 
Does it mean if I had enough faith, I could bring my mother and my father back from the grave? Or if I had enough faith, I could play basketball for the Golden State Warriors and hit 50 points every game? Oh, you don't believe I could? Maybe you see how ridiculous that kind of thinking is. Here's a statement that obviously has some qualifiers, but it has been preached and taught in this kind of blanket way. So unfortunately, this verse has been the source of foolish and unbiblical counsel, in particular coming from pulpits. And so people are trying to practice something that the scriptures never say that they are to do. They're telling blind people that the reason you can't see is what? (laughs) You don't believe. Or that lame people... Well, the reason they're lame is because they can't believe. I've told you the story about my friend from, uh, from Russia. Um, uh, Ivan was his name, and he had a club foot. I remember the story, and he went to a church, and they said, oh, you know, come, we're going to pray over you. And they prayed for healing, and it didn't heal. And he's a guy who walks with God. He has, he's godly, and went back, and they said, come back next week. And so he came back, we're going to pray for you again. And they say, no, we're not going to be able to do it. You must have some sin in your life. You've got to get rid of the sin. And came back, and his, every time he comes back, his foot's still the same. And they finally say, you know, you just don't have enough faith. You need more faith, so come back. And they couldn't do it. They said, you know what? You must be possessed by a devil. I mean, it just, it goes worse and worse and worse. This is not a universal blanket that says whatever you believe will happen. Now, friends, this is so ingrained in our culture. Let me give you an example of that. We hear it in sports all the time. Whether it be football, basketball, or baseball, it's the playoffs, and the team is at this this must-win game, and so all the fans show up, and on their seats are these T-shirts, and you know what it says on the T-shirt? We believe! And so all the fans get together, and they're saying, we believe, and we believe, and we believe. You know I'm talking about the Warriors, don't you? And we're saying, we believe! And they end up losing. And then you listen to the commentators after the game, and you know what they're saying? And, you know, the Warriors lost by one point to the Cavaliers, let's say. And they're saying, you know, the problem was that the Cavaliers just believed more. What a bunch of nonsense. It's not about whether you believed or not. It's about skill, certainly, confidence, maybe, fortune, probably. It's a one-point game. We believe. See, the underlying lie in our culture is that if you just close your eyes and believe that the situation will change in your favor, sadly, that same attitude can creep into our Christian thinking too. What Jesus is saying here is this, that everything that God can ask of you is possible to face as long as you and I believe. So a father and a mother whose son is the victim of demonic possession can find help from God if they will only believe. That doesn't necessarily mean that everything's going to be dandy. Listen, that child who is demon-possessed is still a child who's going to be disobedient. <laughs> right? I mean, so, so the, it's, not a, it's not a whole package. Now, I have a perfect child. No, you have a healed child. You have a, a child who's been possessed, but, you know, uh, has, been, uh, has a demon taken out of them. But 
that child is still going to misbehave. Why? Because it's a human being. A man like Job can face the devastation of losing his family and, and say because of his belief in God the following words, Lord, uh, you, you gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That comes out of a heart that believes that God knows what he's doing in the face of suffering. So it's possible to turn the other cheek or to go the second mile or to overcome evil with good or to, to be poor in spirit and mourn for my sin and to be pure in heart. All those things are possible for those who believe. So what God calls you to, you and I can do if he says you are expected to do that. If you believe. I, I like how Derek Thomas summarizes what it means. He says that everything that God can ask of me, whatever duty, whatever command, it is possible for me, if I believe, to bear any burdens, to cross any river, to endure any pain, to suffer any loss, to pass through any shame. Everything is possible to him who believes. Now back to the story. How does the father respond to what Jesus is saying? Verse 24, immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe. Help my unbelief. Don't you just love the honesty and the humility here of the Father? It's so refreshing, at least for me. I hope it is for you. And why is it so refreshing? Because if we're willing to be honest, we are so much like this Father. We believe. But there's aspects in our lives where we're saying, Lord, help my unbelief. This is raw. This is real. This is where we live. So I'm calling this honest unbelief. A belief that struggles with unbelief. Anyone ever been there? Anyone there right now? You can raise your hand with me. Listen, every Christian who is listening to this sermon has some level of authentic saving faith in his or her heart. However, the intensity of that faith is not constant, is it? It increases, it diminishes, it's fickle, it's fearful, it's intimidated. And even if you are strong in your faith, there will be times in life when you are assaulted by the enemy. It can seem that you're hanging on a thread by your faith. Death, sickness, job loss, damaged relationships, political unrest, and countless other troubles in this life can challenge your faith. And we say to Christ in our hearts, I believe. But my belief is not perfect. It isn't pure. It's not strong. I need help. Help me, Jesus, with my unbelief. It's an honest prayer. It's a right prayer. It's a good prayer. Now notice what happens. Jesus heals. Jesus once again demonstrates his power over the demonic world by rebuking this unclean spirit. And notice the vivid description that Mark gives here. Verse 25, and when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. 
And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out and the boy was like a corpse so that most of them said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up and he arose. My friends, this was battle. This was battle. I mean, this is hard stuff. Just notice the, the, the way the demon here is fighting against even Jesus' command. But Jesus will always be victorious. I'm sure that as the Father is watching, his faith is increased in that moment. What he saw was that Jesus not only can, is that he would, and that he did. He was compassionate, and he helped. And once again, we see in the healing a foreshadowing of what, what Jesus would do in Jerusalem, suffering, death, rising again. How will that take place? Only by the power that is found in Christ alone. Remember the disciples had asked Jesus what it meant by rising from the dead, and here he gives them an object lesson which foreshadows what he is going to be doing. The unbelief of the Father, honest unbelief. And then we get to what I'm calling the unbelief of the disciples. Because I think they're, they're, of course, a part of all of this. They're watching all of this. They're seeing Christ just work majestically in how he's interacting and what he's doing and how he's drawing things out of, of the crowd as well as the Father. And, and now we find this narrative ending up in a house. It began on a mountaintop with the three disciples, and then as they came down, the rest of the disciples were ministering, but unable to cast out the demon from this boy. So we have this mountain high, we have this low valley, but now as we come to the end of this narrative, we see Jesus with his disciples in a house. And what we find in Mark's gospel is that these private gatherings that take place in houses are typically settings for further instruction and revelation for the benefit of those disciples. It's a time of reflection. It's a time of debriefing. It's a time of discussing the events of the day. And the disciples ask the question that is the elephant in the room, right? Verse 28, and when he had entered the house, the disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? Now again, there's, there's no rebuke by Jesus here. There's no Jesus getting angry or upset with the disciples at all. This is a whole teaching tool for them. And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Interesting, this, the other gospels that have this story add and fasting. Now let's just stop and let's just pause a little bit and, and consider what prayer actually is. See, Mark records that Jesus prays three times, and each of those times are in anticipation of critical moments in his ministry. In chapter 1, verse 35, he's preparing to go out and to preach the gospel in Galilee. Chapter 6, verse 46, he's praying while the disciples are out on the boat suffering in the storm. And we find him in the third occasion praying in the garden. That's chapter 14 and verse 32 and following. He's anticipating the betrayal and his ultimate suffering on the cross. 
So Jesus shows us that in fulfilling his mission, he was dependent on the Father. He was praying. He was communing with his Father for what was yet to come. So his answer to the question of the disciples isn't, you won't be able to do anything unless you spend X amount of hours in prayer. I say that. It's not about the time in prayer. Or, or, or if you recite the special formula, like the prayer of Jabez or something like that, that, then you'll have power and things will happen to you. No, that's not what he's talking about. Or that you need to have some kind of posture in your prayer. You know, those who get on their knees. If you have callous knees, we could all kind of line up and show our knees and we could determine who the real prayer warriors are. When I was in college, you knew who the prayer warriors were because they had, they had little, little, they had created in the carpet just they, 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 these crevices where their knees had been laboring in prayer. That's just the kind of thing that, was talked about. It's like, you know, there's, hey, listen, I have no problem with getting on your knees in prayer. I think it's good that posture is all a part of it. But that's not the point of what Jesus is saying here, you see. His words take us to a much deeper issue. That prayer that he's talking about here is actually true faith. It's dependent belief. The issue here is that we're truly dependent on him. In other words, prayer is when we are completely and wholeheartedly and fully dependent on Christ. And you can do that in a moment. And you can do that standing up or sitting down. And you don't have to have any formula. And so the implication here is that when the disciples were out ministering, one of the struggles that they had is they began to try and do this in their own strength rather than depending on Christ. We need Christ. And prayer is shifting your focus to say, this has to be you, Christ. I can't do it. Only you can. And I'm resting on you to accomplish your will. Now, I can take five minutes to make that prayer. I can be laying flat. I can be there for half an hour. But ultimately, it all comes down to the same thing. Am I dependent on Christ or not? That is a question of belief. Now, Jesus calls disciples to tasks beyond their abilities. And as I mentioned earlier, the, the, fast, the, the, the fact that they're able to accomplish those things is evidence that Jesus is the one that actually is the one who does it. So be careful that you don't think that inadequacy means that you have failed Christ. It just means you're inadequate. We're all inadequate. That's why we need Christ. And that's why we must pray in order to see his will accomplished. Prayer is simply total dependence on Christ. And so we have dependent belief here. Prayer that is totally dependent on Christ. Now friends, do we need a reality check to shake up our unbelief? See, fighting against unbelief is where we live our lives every day. In your marriages, you're fighting against unbelief. As parents, you're fighting against unbelief. In your finances, you know, should, I, should I give to the church or should I you know, get something that I want? Should I, should I 
use my, my resources in a way that would honor God, or should I? This is all belief, unbelief questions. Your health concerns, it's an issue of unbelief. You walk into the doctor, you've got a pain in your side, you're not sure what it is, and boy, you can, be, you can go down in a spiral real fast. And you haven't even heard from the doctor yet. It's a battle with belief or unbelief. In your Christian growth, you say, man, I'm just not making progress. I keep falling into the sin, and it's so frustrating. You know, why bother? Uh, unbelief. In our conflicts, oh, I can't talk to that person. They'll, they'll, never, they'll never forgive me for what I did. I'm, so, I'm not going to do that. Unbelief. Unbelief is fought through prayer that looks to and depends on Christ. My friends, we don't have to be a church that gathers for a 24-hour prayer thing. And it's not a bad thing to do. In fact, it may be a good thing to do. But just the fact that we have a 24-hour thing does not mean that, oh, now the heavens are going to part. And God's really, really going to come. He'll come if he wants. But we ought to be a church it takes prayer seriously. And what that means is that when we're faced with whatever we're faced with, we say, God, we can't do it. Only you can. Oh, we'll do our part. We'll be responsible. But we know even with our responsibility, even with our gifts, even with our talents, it isn't enough. Because what we really need is you. So this morning, I want to finish up with three concluding thoughts. Number one, saving faith is risky. It demands your whole being. Let me talk to you who are believers today. There was a point in time probably in your life, especially if you came to faith as an adult, where you started to sort through what you were hearing about the gospel. And you started to consider what the Word of God actually said about your heart and your soul. Not that you were condemned because you committed sin, but you were condemned because you are a sinner in your being. That is true of everyone. You're already condemned, Scripture says. You come to the realization, I'm already condemned because I'm tainted with sin. That's my condition. But the good news is that there's a, there's a solution. There's a diagnosis. I'm a sinful creature. But the good news is that Jesus Christ came and he came to go to a cross and on that cross to die and pay for my sin and to avert the wrath of God from me and have it placed on him. That's the good news. But the good news is also that if I put my faith and trust in Jesus, as the book of John says, if we believe, then we are his children. So we believe those things are true and we believe those things are applied to us. Now, friends, I am sure, just like with me, that there was a time in that process, especially if you came to faith as an adult, where you said, I've got to take a risk here. I've got, I've got, to, I've got to step out, so to speak, not necessarily physically, but I, I'm, I am coming before God. I'm saying, yes, yes, I believe. And what that means is not just, I just want to get to heaven. Just give me that. That's enough. No, what it means is you have got all of me. That Jesus Christ is your Lord. 
That in saving you from your sins, your coming to him means that you're submitting not only to what he has done on the cross, but his position as Messiah, as Lord, governing your life, speaking into your life through his word. That is risky, because now you are not your own master. He is. You see, saving faith is risky. Some people will scoff at it. Some people only want Jesus when they have some kind of difficulty. Oh, yeah, do you, we'll pray for you. Oh, please pray for me. I'm going through this difficulty. The thing gets over with. It gets resolved. They don't even think about Jesus anymore. But others listen. And I, I just want to appeal to you if you're here and you're not a follower of Christ, you're wrestling with this risk There's a whole bunch of people in this room who have stepped over that threshold and do not regret it one bit. Humbling yourself before Jesus as your Lord and Savior, as your master, is a wonderful thing because he's not asking you to do anything that is awful and nasty. He will change your heart to desire to be conformed to his will. It's part of the beauty and the joy of what he accomplishes in us being born again. Secondly, living faith is risky. (laughs) Is it not? (laughs) It demands your whole being. Hearing what God says in his word is many times hard. He calls on us to do things that we don't naturally want to do. So let me just mention a few. To love people who are unloving. To be kind to those who persecute you. To not return evil for evil. You're like, oh man, I wanted to do that. Um, To submit to those who are in authority over you. To serve selflessly, not expecting anything back. To use your gifts for the glory of God. To give faithfully, consistently, and graciously, and lavishly. To study God's word, which at times is difficult and confusing. To encourage someone who's struggling in their walk. These are all risky things. To give counsel to someone who has questions. To put God first as the priority in your marriage and in your family and in your lifestyle. See, all these things are saying, wait a second, I've got to trust what he says and, and, and even as, as a follower of Christ, it's, it's, it's a risk to be obedient. But it's not a bad risk. <laughs> it's a good risk. It all takes risk. But Jesus calls us to come to him independent, saying, I believe, but he'll help my unbelief. That is, that is what a growing believer does. That's what a growing child of God does. He calls us to come to him in prayer, depending on him to be our source of help. Let me just finish up with this last one. So saving faith is risky. Living faith is risky. Fighting for faith is risky. And you say, what do I mean by that? Years ago, I was impacted by the, uh, the preaching ministry of um, John Piper. You may have heard of him. And um, he had just put out a book called Desiring God. And it was a 
it was kind of earth-shattering for me and helpful as far as orienting my heart toward the things of God. And then I listened to a sermon series that he did, and it was called Battling Unbelief. Just a great series. And, and in his first talk, he just talked about what battling unbelief is. And, and some of the things he said just had an impact on me. And I just want to share a little bit of that with you. He emphasized that all of our sin comes from unbelief. And when it comes down to it, unbelief is the one sin that will keep us out of heaven. What is the unpardonable sin? Not believing. You can't get to heaven if you don't believe. You see, we fight for our faith by fighting against unbelief. Sometimes in our Christian walk, we can be so consumed with, I've got to have faith, I've got to have faith, I've got to have faith, and we're ignoring our unbelief. And what we need to do is we need to fight against unbelief so that we can have faith. So we fight against not believing what God says is true, is actually true. In other words, am I going to believe that what God says is true, or am I not going to believe? Is unbelief there now something that needs to be conquered? Absolutely. So I fight against it to believe what he says is true. I fight against not believing in the promises of God. We love the promises of God, but we don't always believe the promises of God. And the challenge is that we believe them. So we have to fight against the unbelief about those promises. Just in summary, becoming a Christian is the beginning of the battle, not the end. Again, one of those lies that we, we have in our Christian churches sometimes is, oh, if you just come to Jesus, everything's going to be all right. Spoken with a Jamaican accent. Hey, friends. Jesus doesn't promise perfect harmony and peace in this life. What he does promise is that you have peace with him and that you grow in understanding, in dealing with the struggles that are in front of you. The battle still rages, but now we fight that battle believing in what the master says about that fight, seeking to obey him. Lord, help us today to consider our struggle with unbelief. It's real, Lord. Lord, may we not beat ourselves up as we think about that struggle. But may the, 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 the flashing lights, so to speak, that come out of this text be a means by which we are drawn to give you our attention and do what Jesus calls on his disciples to do, and that is to pray, to depend completely and wholly on Christ. And Lord, at those times when we we struggle with our belief, Lord. May we come to you humbly and honestly and say, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. Knowing that you are a compassionate Savior 
who desires to help those who will believe. May we come running to believe what you say. Help us, Lord, to fight, to fight, to fight against all those doubts that would stir us up to unbelief. And rather, may we rest in dependence on you. We ask in your precious, most precious holy word.